Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, hosting today with WFIU News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. Today, we're going to be talking about space flight, and we're going to be talking about uh, the most recent launch of Inspiration4 and the future and implications of commercial space flight and other issues related to space. In July, billionaires Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos took an early lead in the commercial space race, but SpaceX has now launched four private citizens into orbit for almost three days. The historic launch could change the future of private space exploration altogether. And we have three guests with us today, three great guests, I must might add. Laura Forsick is owner of space, the space consulting firm Astralitica. Carolyn Free is an associate professor in the Purdue University School of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And Mike Neufeld, I'm sorry, Mike, is senior space history curator for the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at Twitter. Uh, we're, fo- we're on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Thank you so much for joining us. That was a very long introduction. Uh, and now we're going to get right down to it. Laura Forsick, I wanted to ask you first about the uh, significance of the most recent flight. I know you look at big picture things when it comes to space. How significant is this? This is a great movement in the commercial space industry. Previously, we had only seen either uh, private astronauts or spaceflight participants fly up with government hardware. So back in the 2000s, there were seven people who flew up with the Russians who paid their own way. And then earlier this summer, we saw suborbital spaceflight happening, where it was private individuals flying with commercial entities. And now this is the next step, which is commercial companies flying private individuals to orbit, which is really exciting. It's a brand new industry. I want to ask that same question to, to Michael Neufeld. From the Smithsonian, Michael. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon. Um, you know, I I think it's an interesting turning point. Um, it would be both the suborbital and orbital commercial uh, space tourism. Um, the question is: uh, Is it going to be possible to democratize this more? Because obviously, at this point, it's still much. A pretty much a, um, a bailiwick of those who can really afford uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in, in, in expenses. All right, and I want to go to uh, Carolyn Free, and I know, Carolyn, you're not an expert in the most recent launch, but you certainly uh, have been paying close attention to a lot of things that involve space. So how significant does this launch seem to you? Um, I think it's very significant, and I think we're, we're seeing that this is the logical consequence of um, the commercialization of space that we have seen taking place in the in the past year. So um, I think we will see more of that in, in the future. And of course, from my perspective, these um, also impacts the space environment and how um, we, are, we want to use space in a sustainable way if we're seeing um, more commercial satellites and also more um, human space flights from the commercial sector. All right, you've given us lots of things that we can we can pursue a lot of different angles on this today. Laura, I want to go back to you. I mean, what are what are the uh, 
the people doing? I mean, they're not astronauts, but what are the people on the spacecraft doing uh, now? What, what's this mission all about? Well, by most definitions, they are astronauts, and that's really exciting. They've trained for about half a year. They're planning to do medical research, so all of them are partaking in taking their own data, their biometrics. Um, there is one member of the crew who is an actual PA, so she's going to be doing medical testing, as well as other research that they haven't disclosed yet. And we don't know exactly what they're doing up there right now. We know they're doing outreach. They've spoken to children at St. Jude Children Research Hospital, so that medical PA. She is a um, she is a survivor of cancer, childhood cancer. And so she has that real connection to St. Jude, as well as the whole mission Inspiration4 has been dedicated to fundraising for St. Jude. So it's really giving back to the children to say, you too can survive cancer and become an astronaut someday. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else they've done. I imagine that we'll hear more after the mission is over. And there's a Netflix documentary that is currently ongoing. And they'll be airing that last episode in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, before I let you go here, um, about your company. Uh, when did you found it and what all do you do? We founded Astrolytical five years ago to really support the space industry, space uh, industry, space policy, and space science. And so our clients involve, you know, commercial companies, startups, uh, government agencies, nonprofits, educational institutes, really anybody who's doing anything in space. And it's been really exciting this past year to see a, a surge in activity in space and commercial space in the United States in particular. There's a lot of interest and a lot of investor money going into commercial space right now. Now, not just the human spaceflight side, but also, uh, you know, different ways that we can make space sustainable, making different, um, you know, profitable businesses out of space and just bringing space data down to Earth to make it benefit humanity. Um, Michael Neufeld, you've been I know you've done lots of uh, lots of programs on the, the idea of of manned or peopled spaceflight uh, over the last 50 years or so. Um I don't, you haven't been doing programs for that long, but but we've had people in space for for a little longer than that. Um, in terms of, of this, does this give you any pause? I mean, to, to not have people who make it their career to be trained as astronauts, does it give you any pause to start having um, flights where, um, as Laura said, you could consider these these folks astronauts, but they don't have the same training that that were previously required to be on these flights? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, in terms of the suborbital missions, uh, those really require only um, fairly minimal preparation. You need to have a probably uh, time in a centrifuge to understand the G-forces going up and coming down, but that's not too hard. But I, I uh, yeah, I watched the Netflix documentary and it became clear that I was concerned about how this mission would fly only automated without uh, professional astronauts. But it turns out the guy who funds this uh, trip um, flies a MiG-29. <laughs> he, he's a jet fighter pilot, at least on privately. Uh, he owns one. Um, and his uh, the, the second person's uh, cyan um, Proctor, she also had a pilot's license, although much uh, lower level. So they actually got a bunch of training. Uh, it sort of alleviated my concern about, okay, what if you, something really goes wrong and who's going to bring this spacecraft down to Earth again? So I want to go back to Carolyn Free now, because you mentioned the idea of um, the space environment. And I know, you know, another news story that we had in the last few weeks was about uh, some space debris that was um, predicted to fall uh, into the Earth's atmosphere, and and I, I would think that you know as much as as many satellites and as many things as we put into space, that there could be you know issues with that. So, can you talk about that in the big picture? Um, sure. I mean, I think what we have to be aware of, there's a lot of um, space debris already out there. From, from the satellites we kind of track and the U.S. Um, Space Force um, regularly tracks, I mean, only about 3% of those objects, which are around 20,000, 30,000-ish, 20, um, are operational satellites. And the other ones are all debris objects. Not all of them are large. Some of them are small, but some of them are just dead satellites and these things. So um, the 
we, we think about space kind of as this vast resource. And I think what we have to get in mind is already pretty crowded. And we have seen a, a significant uptick in launches ever since the, the, the CubeSats came out, kind of smaller satellites, which made um, kind of bringing satellites uh, or operating satellites in space much more um, economically feasible and kind of fueled a lot of um, the commercial space flight we're, we're seeing um, nowadays or kicked that off. So um, while many of the newer players are kind of more aware of that we need mitigation measures that we have to re-enter um, after end of life, um, um, at least within 25 years, so, so the recommendation. Um, they also put aggressively many satellites into space. And um, so we really have to be um, careful how we are how we are navigating that resource and um, how we are dealing with the new stuff that comes in, the new satellites, but also the ones that are that are already there and the debris that's that's already there. So um, that makes a very challenging um, task, and we will see a lot more of that in the future. As we yeah, as we cannot just stuff more 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 things into into space and get away with it. Do we need to? do something to start addressing the problem with space junk before this idea of commercial space flight really takes off? Um, I think the, the the players of the commercial space flight are already aware of the of the issue but as always it's it's a trade-off right between your your what you want to achieve and then how much funding can you can you allocate and considerations of end of life and space debris but if you're just going going ahead without that consideration i think um the spacefaring will will come to a very sharp halt at some point because we, we just have clocked it up so um there are already measures in place as i said the 25 year rule to um to orbit after end of life um the, the missions are designed, but we need to be, be better about how to design them to reduce space debris in the in the mission phase already. And um, yeah, this this is something that has to be baked into your mission design. Otherwise, yeah, we, we don't have a good path into the future. If I, if I may say something here, um, you know, I, this topic brings up the fact, the reality that. 90% plus of what we do in space has nothing to do with sending humans there. And in fact, all of these systems on which everyday life depends now, like GPS, like communication satellites, like weather satellites, they're all up there. And we have to be concerned about this proliferation, at least in low Earth orbit, of junk. So as... Uh, Professor Free said we have to be uh, interested in making sure that these uh, small satellites and all these constellations of uh, communication satellites in particular uh, are designed to come down or to, you know, fire a rocket and lower themselves into an orbit in which they uh, rapidly burn up. Otherwise, we're really going to have a problem in the low Earth orbit area. Michael, I'm really glad you uh, you brought that up. You know, I'm I'm of a certain age, so I can remember when Alan Shepard went into space. I was, you know, elementary school kid, and so I've I've been watching what's happened with space. And since we started putting people in space all those years ago, those are the launches that people are just fascinated with because people are fascinated with with space in general and with space flight in particular. And I guess I wanted wanted to ask you and then get the the same um, get an answer from the other two about you know what you can expand on what you just said i mean space flight is is one thing and obviously it's important and it's exciting and it's what gets a lot of the big headlines but the work that's done in space uh, talk about the importance of that just overall to our day-to-day -day living right um i mean it's a point i made i wrote a short book for mit press called space flight a concise history the chapter I have is the global space infrastructure. And it's really about the fact that we've constructed this massive infrastructure in orbit around the Earth to support life on Earth. And that's the great majority of launches and the great majority of things sent into space. The media and is and the general public seem to only want to talk about human spaceflight while barely mentioning this, except, of course, we just brought up the space junk problem. But we barely mention the fact 
that we have become so dependent on these systems. I mean, on the civilian side, I already mentioned GPS. Of course, there are also several other navigation satellite systems now, a Russian one, a European one. But, you know, all of our devices, <laughs> just about everything now, uses location services from satellite. Um, we're, we, we, we take for granted world communications, especially television is very dependent on, on satellites uh, for world communications. And now, you know, with Star, SpaceX launching Starlink, they're trying to create um, low Earth orbit constellations of uh, uh, satellites for internet access anywhere on the globe. Uh, and we may very well become dependent on that. Weather satellites, I mean, everybody wants to make sure that when they look at their weather, they want to know the hurricane warnings, our understanding of global climate, of global weather, and our warning of storms is very dependent on these global uh, weather satellite systems, both low Earth orbit and out in a 24-hour orbit at ge geostationary. And then finally, the military is totally dependent on satellite systems. And not only GPS and military communications, uh, but it has you know its own weather satellites. And then we've got missile early warning. You know, do we want to do without missile early warning? And then finally, also uh, uh, reconnaissance. And the re reconnaissance of the whole globe through satellites made uh, not having a nuclear war possible because neither side could hide its its strategic missile and aircraft systems when you had global coverage by reconnaissance satellites. I want to let our other guests uh, address this too, but I want to give our contact information. You can send us your comments or your questions, and we will relay them to our panelists, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us questions there. Laura, I wanted you to, to address that next, and then Carolyn, but Laura, from your standpoint and, and with your company, you're doing a lot of things that, that don't have to do with space, with uh, manned space flight or putting people into space. Um, same question to you about the, the focus on people in space versus the importance of everything that goes on in space. I second what the other two guests said. There's a push right now to understand that space is a critical infrastructure. It is something that we take for granted in our modern society. It really truly is just like our electrical grid and our water system. I mean, it really is integrated into every part of what we do in modern life. It touches pretty much every industry in ways that we don't even think of because we take it for granted. And so there's a lot going on right now to both track the satellites in space to that's up there, which is a very difficult thing to do because this is unpredictable movements of tumbling and we just don't have a means of tracking them right now very well. There's new technology that is now being put on some satellites to track them better. There's also better ways to maybe capture debris. Um, and, you know, there's the test going on right now by some companies that are trying to make money um, being either being able to capture space debris in terms of like the natural space junk or the pieces that have broken off satellites, and also a push to satellite service. So think of satellites as an asset, and some assets are very expensive up there. And if you can extend the lifetime of some of those very expensive satellites, or bring them into a safe deorbit so that they're not staying up there for, in some cases, centuries, then that can really open up a better um, sustainability of our environment. And we really need to think about this as environmentalism. It's simply environmentalism in Earth orbit rather than environmentalism on Earth's surface or in Earth's oceans. And it's an extension of what we already do. We just need to figure out how to um, fund it, whether it's a government funding it or whether it's an international you know, collaboration or whether it's some way to make a profit from it, from, from companies maybe recycling the material, which right now has legal barriers, but could be a, a solution in the future. And we have seen this impact human spaceflight already. In the past couple of years, we've seen more and more uh, 
uh, instances where the International Space Station has had to maneuver because of a possible conjunction with something in space that wasn't supposed to be hitting the International Space Station that is now getting too close. So the astronauts on board the ISS have to take actions. They have to get in a, a specialized location in case of emergencies, and they have to fire thrusters. And it's, it, it wastes time and fuel, and it puts lives in danger. And so the previous uh, NASA administrator has actually spoken out against uh, space debris and the creation of more space debris through um, something called kinetic impacts, um, like anti-satellite weaponry. So this is the kind of thing to think of, is banning uh, these kinds of missiles or weapons that can create more space debris, as well as fixing the problem that we already started of picking up what's already up there. Carolyn at Purdue, I know, you know, you study this and, and you talk about this and Purdue has, you know, such a robust program uh, with, I mean, and astronauts are obviously a, a big part of it, but such a robust program in studying space. Um, so I want you to talk about this issue too. Um, yeah, I mean, I second everything Michael and um, Laura, Laura said. I think what we have to have in mind is when we put human in, into space, the stakes are just higher, right? If I have a, a piece of space debris taking out a satellite, I mean, that's a big loss. And if it's a, a, like a weather satellite or a GPS satellite, um, that, that really hurts the infrastructure. But of course, that's very different than having um, people exposed. And the, the thing we have to keep in mind is that those pieces are um, incredibly fast, right? So even a small piece like, like um, of a quarter inch or something, as it's traveling several kilometers per second, it's kind of faster than coming out of a, out of a gun or something. So um, for example, if the ISS, when the ISS saddle, um, astronauts make their spacewalks, I mean, yeah, they, they try to um, be in a place where they are better protected against the space debris kind of behind uh, the, the main direction it's expected to come from in order to not just be pierced by a piece and that's that's the end of it. So um, these, these are the things we have to keep in mind that the stakes are just higher when we have people in space and of course part of my work is to work on tracking the objects better, finding out better where they are, where, where they're going to be. On the other hand, um, it has this fascination of having people in space. I think from a scientific perspective, um, like robots can do many things and they are easier to get to places. Like if you're thinking about the Mars rovers and the things, I mean, they're, they're, they're very capable of, um, of conducting some of, some of the very important um, experiments and as they don't need um, air and water and food, they are kind of easier to get there. And we do not necessarily have to bring them back either, but um, it's still not the same. The fascination is really, yeah, that we want to have humans in space. That, that has such a, such a different impact to it. And I think um, that, that's why this humans in space, the, the launch now, um, has, has created so, so much bigger waves than, I don't know, sending another robot or something. Just a quick follow-up, Carolyn. You mentioned some of the small pieces, but but how big can some of these pieces be? Um, they are all sizes. I mean, the um, space debris, per definition, is anything that humans have brought into space, human-made materials that um, that are no longer functional or not, are not in an expectation of resuming any function in the future. So that includes... A whole satellite, right? As soon as the satellite is not operational anymore, it becomes space debris, and that can be as big as a as a bus, right? And um, but we also have um, explosion events, um, especially upper stages, which are also also um, fairly fairly big. Uh, the last one stays in space, um, but they tend to if you leave the fuel in there, then it as it heats up and cools cools down um, as it's in the sun and then in, in the shadow. Um, we have been observing that they um, self-explode sometimes, so you also get a lot of kind of small pieces. But but they're really all all sizes, from kind of the, the bus size to down to a centimeter, millimeter size. Okay, okay. Mike, I, I want to shift gears a bit because, you know, I guess when I was younger, you, you always heard about NASA going into space, and now it feels like it's always SpaceX. Um, when did we really have this shift to having private companies and, and I guess just a follow-up to that what do you think this means for the future of space exploration 
Well, you know, clearly it's part of a, of a longer shift that's been taking place since at least the 80s and the 90s uh, towards more and more commercial use of space. I mean, ultimately, it means, of course, that space is being used a lot more for a lot of important things and uh, it doesn't only need to be supported by government. Um, you know, in terms of government, uh, I should point out that uh, NASA is only part of it because the military has always had a very large space program, continues to have a very large space program. But as we've gone on, some things are starting to make money. And, you know, communication satellites, that was the first really for a long time, the only technology in which you could make money building communication satellites and putting them in 24-hour orbits. That was the way it was generally done. But more recently, we've seen um, Earth orbiting imagery, you know, sort of like Digital Globe and Planet. Other companies are um, taking imagery and selling it. I mean, in, in fact, a large part of their uh, business model is, is taking government money because they're, they're selling those images also to our intelligence agencies, but they are selling images to private customers, even human rights groups sometimes have used uh, satellite imagery to see what's going on in Darfur or China or some other place. So um, commercial space is really here to stay. It has been for a while. Commercial launches, you know, the companies launching satellites, uh, that's been here for some time, but we're just kind of on the cusp of maybe having commercial human spaceflight actually work and uh, carry more people into space. What sort of opportunities, I guess, and then problems could this um, could this pose when we're having these commercial companies doing it? Whereas before, like you said, it was the government and um, you know NASA and the military. You know, I I think that we basically hit on the core problem in our discussion, which is you know. Uh, space junk, uh, just proliferating the number of satellites without taking care to make sure that a lot of that debris gets removed, or uh, in that, or we we remove the satellites before they become dead and blow up, or something like that. That's the that's the main concern. I mean, we're opening up a new market, and uh, I guess we also have to think a little bit about the climate aspects of this. I mean, on the one side, um, uh, Earth observation, Earth science through satellite is absolutely central to understanding um, the uh, climate change. But on the other hand, uh, we want to make sure that our all of our launching activity is not creating a lot more greenhouse gases in, uh, for the atmosphere. We're listening to, we're, we're talking with three um, experts on space today. That was Mike Neufeld, who's Senior Space History Curator for the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. We also have Laura Forsick, the owner of space, the space consulting firm Astrolytica, and Carolyn Free, Associate Professor in Purdue University School of Aeronautics and Astronautics. If you have questions or comments about what's going on with the most recent space flight, or uh, we're really getting into um, the bigger picture about space and its importance and what's going to be happening there, please contact us, news at indianapublicmedia.org or at Noon Edition. So, Laura, I don't know if it was you, but one, one of our panelists talked about the democratization of these space flights, because right now it's billionaires who are doing them. I mean, do you, uh, what do you foresee in terms of this being affordable for people to start going into space at some point? I mean, it will still be probably pretty wealthy people, but people being able to go into space on sort of that tourism mission. And we've already talked about some of the concerns about that, but what do you, what do you, when do you see something like that actually happening? Well, the billionaires get all the attention, but it isn't only billionaires who are flying. Right now, we have four people on dragging orbiting the Earth, and only one is a billionaire. The other three were selected, and yes, the billionaire purchased the flight. But it's it's one of those things where you can, in some way or another, find yourself in space, not necessarily through a government selection process. So NASA is particularly selective, and other government agencies, um, you know, most of them don't have their own way of selecting astronauts, and some of them do, and and those are even more selected because there's so few spots. But here you have a sort of 
an open um, opportunity for just about anybody to be able to fly in space. We saw on this mission, um, Haley Arkno, who's who has the the first prosthesis. Her leg um, has as a uh, she had bone cancer, so her leg has a prosthesis. So she's the first person to fly in space with that kind of disability, um, and so that opens it up to, to new possibilities of really anybody of any background. There are um, agencies out there, organizations that are trying to fund missions for just about anyone to enter a contest and be able to fly. I'm thinking specifically of things like the Discovery Channel is going to host a TV series, uh, kind of a reality show uh, to select one. There's also one called Space Hero that wants to do something similar, a reality TV show to select an astronaut to go to the International Space Station. Um, And then there's groups like um, I'm, I'm blanking on their names right now, but there's there's other groups that are trying to fund ways that anybody can go to space. Even suborbitally, we saw this uh, summer in July, the Blue Origin mission, Jeff Bezos, it's his company, right? So he went and he chose his brother, but he also flew two other individuals. One was a, a not a billionaire himself, but uh, his father purchased the ticket. And the other was not a billionaire. It was aviator Wally Funk, who's actually a pioneer in aviation and had been wanting to go to space, trying to go to space for six decades and finally got her chance to go. And another avenue is science. So we saw on the Virgin Galactic flight this past July, there was somebody doing science on board. And that's another avenue where either um, NASA is going to be picking people who are not NASA astronauts to go do science. One of my colleagues is, is the first one chosen to do a future flight on Virgin Galactic as a NASA selectee, but not as a NASA astronaut to go on Virgin Galactic to do science. I have another friend of mine who's chosen by a university to fly on a future Virgin Galactic flight to do science. So that's a real avenue as well is science organizations, universities, nonprofits being able to fly their people, their employees or their representatives to go to space. And and it's one of those areas that no one can predict the future. But the hope is that just like in the aviation industry, it started very expensive about a century ago. It was extremely expensive and limiting uh, to fly in, in an aircraft. And now just about anybody can afford to go. So no one knows the future. I can't predict when you and I are going to be able to afford it. But I'm very hopeful that the price will come down, not in the near term, but as it becomes more mature and as uh, this technology becomes more accessible to the wider population, that it's a technology that starts out high, just like so many other technologies, and then comes down. I wouldn't go someday, but if I can't, maybe my kids can. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Laura, because I know that um, our producer uh, gave me some background information on you that says you've been to U.S. Space Camp six times and that you've done several Earth-bound simulations of going to space. What, What fascinates you so much about going into space? Well, like so many other people, I found my love of space from childhood and uh, science fiction in particular, and I never let go of that. And it's it's one of those things where um, I don't know if it's it's human nature in general or it's just cultural that I want to explore. I want to break those barriers. I want to go where, and for me, it's the moon. I want to get to the moon. Uh, I was not alive during the Apollo era. So I'm really excited about NASA's Artemis program, which is returning humans to the moon uh, probably, you know, sometime in the next few years. They say 2024. It's probably more like 2025, 2026, but it doesn't matter to me exact date. I'm really excited to just even see that, to see humanity stretching our bounds and going beyond. I mean, this is our home planet and it will always be our home planet, but we don't need to necessarily stay here we can go explore what else is out there and and for me personally to experience that even just on a suborbital flight would be uh, monumental it would be life-changing <laughs> and i'm really looking forward to someday being able to do that it hopefully if i'm very very fortunate one of our uh, listeners sent in a, a question or a comment says should there be should we expect to see ads on the sides of spaceships or on the space suits that people going into space are wearing. And I guess I would expand on that and say that, you know, we've we've been talking about a lot of things today that are just fascinating to me, um, but I see some contradictions, you know, that we're, on the one hand, it's really exciting to have, to democratize this and have people going into space and and the the human space flight is so exciting. But on the other hand, there's so much more to, you know, the importance of space. So 
would seeing, you know, seeing ads and having companies purchasing ads on the side of, of rockets and whatnot, would that be a something we're going to see? And would that be a good idea? And Michael, let me go to you first. Um, it's not even a new idea. It's already been done. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, there was a time when the Russians were so desperate post-Cold War that they put advertising. They had advertising done in the, in the Mir space station. Um, the logos on rockets are nothing new, actually. Uh, I suppose Inspiration4 wearing spacesuits with various things on them could be considered, you know, SpaceX branding and whatever. So, um, yeah, it's not even a new thing. In fact, the Russians are about to launch uh, on their next Soyuz flight to the space station a film director and a uh, actress, and they're going to film scenes for a movie in the Russian part of the space station. So all of that's already here. So, Carolyn, is that a, a good thing? Um, as everything, it has two sides of it. If you want the democratization of space and you want to make it cheaper, well, then I think ads are the way to go in that sense, right? It's bringing down the cost. And I would agree with Michael that what we are seeing at the moment is um, SpaceX ads at its finest in a very subtle way, in a sense. So, and um, so in that sense, it can be a good thing. On the other hand, well, everybody thinks advertisement is annoying, so that's not necessarily um, a good thing. Um, well, I think well, we will see yeah, advertisement on, on the on the rockets on, on launch or something. I don't think we will see it on the outside of the spacecraft much because, yeah, just, yeah, we don't get good pictures of that uh, from from afar right because so so far away so um so i think um we're not gonna gonna see um see that but yeah on the suits and stuff i can certainly um imagine imagine that very well so um caroline you might be the best person to answer this question we got how does the outer space peace treaty affect um uh, how does that apply to private groups yeah, that um, that's actually a very good question, and that that's something um, kind of on, on what we discussed earlier on what what is moving uh, relative to or what is changing relative relative to having commercial spaceflight. Yeah, we are not really up to speed on on all the policy issues, right? I mean, the, because um, space doesn't belong to to anybody, and then um, you have the the, the certain um, governing body, bodies from from the uh, UN, the UN Corpus, um, and uh, you have the International Astronautical Confederation, but but none of them has has kind of a legislative arm in that sense, right? It's, uh, the, the nations um, the, have to pick that up and then write that into international law, and I think that that's a place where we are really. Um, um, lagging the the commercial developments that, that are rapid relative to the legislative frameworks um, that are um, not properly in place at the moment. I, sh I should have asked you, Carolyn. Could you just explain briefly what the outer space space outer space? I apologize. Peace treaty is. Um, I think actually Laura would be better to. <laughs> Laura, can you take that? <laughs> sure. I'm not a lawyer, but the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 was signed by all of the major space players in several other countries. I, I forget quite how many, like 80 some maybe, have signed and ratified. Um, and it is a, a collection of norms of behavior that we want to promote. For example, space is only going to be used for peaceful purposes. It bans weapons of mass destruction, but not necessarily weapons. Um, it talks about, uh, for example, um, ownership. And so that's an area of controversy right now. Um, nobody can own space. No one can claim sovereignty of space. But does that mean that private companies can't mine materials on the moon or asteroids or Mars and then sell it? Um, the United States says yes, companies can absolutely do that. And several other countries have said yes. Some countries say no, it's a global commons or, or whatever the term may be. Um, and so there's, like, like Carol was saying, there's some areas that the legislation, that the policy has has not caught up because private players were not envisioned in 1967 to be serious. Um, and so 
all private companies are under their own countries. So the country is responsible for what the company does. So for example, SpaceX is a U.S. company. So the United States is responsible for what SpaceX does. U.S. citizens on board the International Space Station or Dragon, the United States is responsible for them. But, you know, how does that play out in reality? We haven't seen that in practice much. We have about 10 minutes to go. So if you have a question or a comment, send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org or send them to us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to talk about Space Force because that was something that happened during the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, it was met with um, some skepticism from some, but but listening to all of you talk today, it seems like a, a very viable and needed idea um i don't know who wants to take this first but michael how about you but yeah. space space force what's what's its mission and how important is it yeah i know when that whole thing happened i was kind of so bothered by how empty-headed the both right and left discussion of it was in fact space force you know there are people who argued it was premature to cut it out of the Air Force and make it an independent service. That's kind of moot now. But in fact, basically, it's the space part of the Air Force. Um, it's technically still part of the Department of the Air Force. It's sort of like the Marine Corps is part of the Navy Department. The Space Force is part of the Air Force Department. And so at this point, we've largely just taken the Air Force, what Air Force has been doing in space, which is a lot for decades, and, 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 and call it a separate service. Um, and the question now is whether any elements of the Army and Navy that are doing space work might also be transferred into the Space Force. But uh, it has nothing to do at this point, at least, with, you know, guys in fighters firing laser cannons in space, which was kind of the image a lot of people had of what the Space Force was about. Yeah, Laura, did I think you yeah, I, I echo. Sorry, I, I echo what Michael just said. I mean, it's something that actually has been going on for quite some time. For three decades, for example, Space Command, which is now under Space Force, has been tracking space debris for the world. I think it was made political because of the people in power wanting to make it a rallying cry. Um, but I, I, I agree that it's not science fiction. It's just one of those things that uh, we do in the background. And I think it's appropriate this time that we, um, you know, make it, it its own entity. I don't know if the name Space I preferred the original name, Space Corps, but that's not my decision. Um, but it, it was it was nonpartisan before it was made partisan. And so I'm looking forward to seeing it become nonpartisan again. Are we going to see a um, some sort of a space station as part of this democratization of space? Will people be, will we, will it be, you know, in, in the next, I don't know, decade or so where people will be able to, either use the space station that's there and stop there on their on a on a trip or i mean i'm just trying to trying to separate the you know the the sort of scientific or the science fiction kind of things from what's really uh, potentially going to happen Yes. So I'm really glad you brought this up because this is the next wave of what really truly is happening. The International Space Station has been up there for over two decades. It has a finite life. We don't yet know when we're going to end the International Space Station. Current administration wants to keep it to at least 2030, but the funding hasn't been agreed yet. But we can imagine at least, you know, at least until 2030, the International Space Station will be there. But there have been agreements already signed with a private company called Axiom Space to build segments on on the International Space Station called Axiom Station that will break off and become their own space station, a free-flying space station by a private company after the International Space Station retires. And there are other companies that want to do this as well. Um, Nanoracks, Boeing, I mean, there's a whole line of companies, Sierra Space, that have plans to do either human space stations or, uh, you know, robotic automated space stations or outposts or whatever you want to call them. And it really truly is the future because the only government space station that United States wants to build in the future is Gateway, which is around the moon. Russia still wants to build a government space station. China is building their new space station right now. Um, but the United States wants to transition from government to private. 
one other follow-up I, I have about um, just the democratization portion of this is, you know, some so much good has happened with our space flight. Um, some, but there have been some very high-profile uh, disasters like the Challenger and and Columbia. It, and I'm just wondering if if there is, uh, and I don't want to certainly don't want to think this into you know, into existence, but if there is some sort of significant um, event, negative event, what could that do to, um, you know, the progress that we seem to be having on making it um, more possible for more humans to go into space? Well, I... Yeah, yeah, sorry. But, uh, I would say all the previous deaths have not actually changed anything. Obviously, there would be a setback of a year to two, two years often uh, where his, the U.S. would stop flying, but it hasn't stopped people from flying in space. And I think the real question will become with the commercial space flight. It would be a much harder, obviously, for a company to keep flying tourists if they tourists, you know, are killed in an accident. So it's very important that they try to avoid having accidents for money reasons, if nothing else. Carolyn, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the the stakes are high when we bring bring the humans into space and um, the, the security levels or um, the, the measures that are taken to make that secure are high, um, yeah, um, to protect the people and also for liability issues. I would think the um, the overall thrust that, that will continue, what could um, kind of bring things um, down or put a dent in the, in the industry is kind of large solar eruptions where we have kind of um, frying up some of the electronics of, of the satellite um, that, that is a real scenario, could also impact um, the Earth. Other thing is kind of a real big collision, which clogs up um, space with a lot of space debris for, um, for quite some time until um, it either naturally comes down or kind of uh, maybe has an active removal mission. So I think those are scenarios that they're not um, kind of super likely to happen tomorrow or something, but I think we have to keep that in, in the back of our our heads that that could put put a dent in the industry because I don't know if we have a lot of even if we only have a lot of small um, debris pieces in a certain um, well liked region of space then we need more sp- more shielding and these things and that just makes the spacecraft heavier and then it makes it more costly and then we are losing a bit the business edge on on some of the things so so those would would, would be scenarios that, that put a dent in, in that, but I would agree that the overall thrust will continue. We will see uh, more people going into space, no matter what. Are other countries sending private citizens to space like we are? Um, Mike, maybe you can chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, in uh, I think Carolyn perhaps uh, mentioned, or one of us mentioned that the uh, Russians launched uh, seven tourists, um, uh, at least seven tourists, into space in the early 2000s on Soyuz flights. And they are, now that the U.S. is no longer dependent on the Soyuz to get to the space station, there are seats open, which means they're going to start launching people who pay them uh, on tourist flights. Um, and I know there's commercial space flight companies in China uh, whether how much of that comes of that is a little unclear at this point. Uh, so definitely there will be other countries who are on other companies and uh, not based in the U.S. who are trying to enter the market. Does that mean at all that we'll see fewer astronauts from NASA going or are the two really unrelated, you think? Uh, I mean, you know, NASA astronauts are going to the space station now. And as you know, as we mentioned uh, it, it it may it may continue with Laura eventually was going to continue maybe at least for this decade, and we have a program to send astronauts to the moon. So I think the public is probably almost not conscious of this program at all. But uh, starting hopefully in 2023, we're going to start sending astronauts to the moon, the NASA astronauts. So low Earth orbit may be transitioning towards more commercial, but anything beyond that is still going to be uh, the government bailiwick because it's going to be um, very much too expensive for commercial tourism, particularly anytime soon. We only have about three minutes to wrap this up. It's been a great conversation today, but I want to give each of you the opportunity to uh, tell our audience what you're most excited about um, 
in terms of the exploration of space going forward. And let's start with Carolyn. Um, I think I'm most excited about that um, the, the, the research part is kind of leaving the near-Earth realm to a certain extent and is looking further out. I mean, uh, Laura has mentioned that we're uh, kind of more missions to the moon, to L2 and to Mars and kind of have more of a space station maybe on the moon or a permanent president, uh, presence of humans um, further out uh, in space, which has a lot uh, a lot of new possibilities and also new challenges. So I'm, I'm excited um, to, see, to see that and to be a part of that from the research side. Okay, Laura? I feel like there's been so much promise for so long that just hasn't happened. Maybe the older generations especially can really feel that, that you, you thought you'd have flying cars and whatever. And now it feels like it's finally happening, right? Like I, my generation, I, I'm, I'm a millennial and we have not seen people touch foot on another planetary surface. We've always just been going around the planet, which is really cool. I love the space station, but there's something different about really going beyond. And I'm looking forward to seeing both how far we can go in our solar system and what we might find, you know, on the various moons of Jupiter and Saturn and maybe even getting out there to the Kuiper Belt objects. I mean, I'm really excited about how far humanity can go. But I'm also excited to see the diversity of both humanity going up there, so the different people all around the world, not just, you know, not just the, the right stuff kind of white male fighter pilot that we saw in the 1960s and 70s, but the real true diversity of humanity and what we choose to do when we go up there. We've got all these science fiction stories telling us the possibilities. What will we actually choose to do when we have commercial space stations or bases on other planets? I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And I think it really truly will happen in my lifetime. Michael, last minute. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I like everything that the previous speaker said. I'm very interested in uh, exploring the moon with humans again. I'd like to see that happen in my lifetime. Um, I personally am very excited by the uh, robotic exploration of the planets. I'm very interested in that and seeing more expansion into more exotic locations in the outer solar system. And finally, as someone who always wanted to go into space, I'm kind of excited by this suborbital space tours in particular, seeming like a real possibility, although I think at this point my doctor would say don't do it. <laughs> Thank you to Mike Neufeld, Senior Space History Curator for the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And thank you to Laura Forsick, owner of space consulting firm Astrolytica, and Carolyn Free, an associate professor in Purdue University School of Aeronautics and Astronautics. For co-host Sarah Whitmire, producers Holden Abshear and Bento Boutier, and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thank you for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Support for WFIU comes from our sustainers and from... Eskenazi Museum of Art, presenting The Art of the Character, highlights from the Glenn Close Costume Collection, on view through November 15th.